This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. And I would like to welcome you to One Month to a Better Board. In this month of February 2017, I'm going to go through and do a series of podcasts talking about making your board more effective. I'm going to start out with the legal requirements that a board has around compliance, move into why a board needs a compliance committee and compliance expertise at the board. I'm going to talk about how the CCO should report to the board and questions that a board compliance committee should ask of a CCO. We're going to take a look at some government guidance and business experience around compliance and the board. We're going to talk about some board failures. We're going to talk about how boards do investigations. We're going to look at boards and internal controls. I'm going to end with a series of specific questions that a board should ask of its chief compliance officer. And on my final day, I'll detail 20 questions that every board should ask of its chief compliance officer. Each day, I will give you a short 10-minute or so podcast with three key takeaways for that day. And I will accompany each podcast with text that you can use. The 20 questions that I referenced will be provided on the final day of February. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for joining me on this journey to one month to a more effective board. Day 11. What leads to successful board investigation? In an article by David Bayless and Tammy Aberon, they list five considerations to facilitate a successful board investigation. Number one, consider whether you need independent outside counsel. The appearance of partiality undermines the objectivity and credibility of an investigation. This means you should not use your regular counsel. And the SEC analysis of how truly independent board members are may also explain the need for independent counsel. The SEC considers the following criteria when determining whether and how much credit to give for self-policing, self-reporting, and remediation and cooperation. So these are some of the questions and factors the SEC will consider. Did management, the board, or committees consisting solely of outside directors oversee the review? Did company employees or outside persons perform the review? If it was outside persons, have they done any other work for the company? If the review is conducted by outside counsel, had management previously engaged such counsel? How long ago was the firm's last representation of the company? How often has the law firm represented the company? How much in legal fees has the company paid the law firm? As Andre Agassi is wont to say, perception is reality. So if the answers to these questions lend to a perception that there's close involvement by the outside counsel, it may not be viewed as independent. Number two, consider hiring an experienced investigator to lead the internal investigation. You need to utilize specialized investigative counsel in any serious investigation. If a board is leading an investigation, I would submit to you that it is serious by definition. 
Your investigation needs to be led by a lawyer with significant experience in conducting internal investigations, a strong criminal background, or a background in SEC enforcement, and have sub- substantive expertise in the particular area at issue, area of law at issue. These traits are needed so that your designated counsel will think like an investigator, not like an in-house lawyer or civil litigator. Number three, consider the need to retain outside experts. In any Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or other anti-bribery investigation, there will be a need for a wider variety of subject matter experts than simply a compliance professional. If there's an accounting issue, forensic accountants may be needed. In this day and age, an electronic discovery consultant is often required. You will need a translations expert if the investigation is cross-border. There will be a wide variety of expertise that you may need uh, to call upon. This means that the lowest bid may not necessarily be the best for a particular investigation. While cost is certainly important, Understanding the limitations of each consultant and with input from your investigator, determine which consultant best meets your goals. Number four, analyze potential conflicts of interest at the outset and during the investigation. There are two general conflicts of interest that may come to light during an investigation, and we can only say that after the Yates Memo and the pilot program, these two are acerbated. The first which comes up is when the law firm or the lawyers conducting the investigation or those whose prior legal advice had some bearing on the matter being investigated because the company's regular outside lawyers represent the company. During an internal investigation, the lawyers may be hired by and represent the board or the compliance committee of the board. The second occurs when a lawyer or law firm jointly represents the board and employees at the company as regulators have become more increasingly concerned with joint representations. The trickier question is what to do when there is simply a risk that representing one client could limit the lawyer's duties to another. And certainly recalling the Yates memo where companies have to turn over information on potential culpable individuals as soon as possible, having one lawyer representing all of these parties is problematic at best, and it may even get the lawyer in trouble for violation of state ethical duties. So in these situations, joint representation may not be appropriate. Number five, carefully evaluate whistleblower allegations. Certainly, uh, as far back as Sarbanes-Oxley and through Dodd-Frank, whistleblowers have become more important and taking their allegations seriously is paramount. If you recall the recently concluded trial of the BioRad General Counsel, who won $10 million from his company for being terminated for what he claimed was whistleblowing. This does not mean trying to find out who the whistleblowers are to punish or stifle them, even if they're located outside the United States and do do not have protections under Sarbanes-Oxley or Dodd-Frank, because they can still get hefty bounties. Many companies come to grief and into significant problems when whistleblower allegations are discounted, if not outright dismissed, especially if the whistleblower has a history of causing trouble or is perceived as incompetent. When this type of whistleblower makes a claim, it is easy to presume ulterior motives. While such ulterior motives might exist, it does not matter one iota when it comes to the investigation 
as regulators are very wary of boards who do not satisfactorily evaluate a whistleblower's complaint based upon the perception of the whistleblower as opposed to the substance of the complaint. And never forget the ubiquitous, not a team player label put on many whistleblowers. Uh, the minute you do this, the minute you do what BioRad did, which is post-termination, try to beef up the uh, file to document the reasons for the termination, you have guaranteed yourself not only a large payout, but evidence of uh, intent to violate the law. Number six, request regular updates from outside counsel without limiting the investigation. These types of investigations are very long and costly. They can easily spin out of cost control. By trying to manage these costs, a board might be perceived as placing improper limits on the investigation. The goal is to strike the right balance between the cost of the investigation, its thoroughness, and credibility. To do so, you have to have flexibility. A board can begin a project with an agreed-upon initial scope of work and then revisit the scope of work as the investigation progresses. If the conduct is discovered, if conduct is discovered that legitimately calls for expanding the scope of the investigation, then the board can revisit the issue at that point. Put another way, the scope of what to investigate is not a static one-time decision. It can and usually does evolve. By seeking regular updates, questioning counsel on what they are doing and why, directors can help manage costs while at the same time ensuring that the investigation is sufficiently thorough and credible. And number seven, consider whether an oral report at the conclusion of the investigation is sufficient. While there may be instances in which, due to the complexity and the nature of the allegations involved, a written report is necessary, there may be times when an oral report delivered to a board is better than a written report, for a written report may be easier to follow and appear to the logical conclusion to an investigation. It is an expensive and time-consuming endeavor, and it comes with great risk. So what are these risks? First, it is easier to inadvertently waive the attorney-client privilege if a written report is created and in the wrong hands. Such a written report may well create a roadmap to a plaintiff in any shareholder action. Second, once those findings and conclusions are written, they become set in stone. If later information comes to light that impacts the report's conclusion, altering the conclusions may undermine the credibility of the entire investigation. So retaining flexibility to change the findings if further information is learned is a real advantage of an oral report. Third, it takes time to prepare a well-written and thorough report. When an internal investigation must be conducted quickly, spending time to prepare a written report may not be an efficient use of time. For all of these reasons, an oral report presented to a board and documented in the board of directors' meeting minutes may be sufficient. By keeping in mind these issues, a board will be better prepared for the investigation and readily able to exercise good judgment throughout the review. A well-conducted investigation by the board may spare the company further disruption and cost associated with follow-on investigations by regulators and, at the very least, minimize the company's exposures. So what are the three key takeaways? Well, the first is I really recommend that you utilize outside counsel and outside investigative counsel. You need to have uh, people who are not perceived to be influenced by the amount of money or overall spend you have with their law firm, and subject matter experts, preferably ex-DOJers or SEC lawyers. Second, whistleblower allegations. 
In 2016, the Securities and Exchange Commission announced they'd made over $100 million in whistleblower awards to uh, under Dodd-Frank. Uh, the whistleblower office of whistleblowers is not going away. It's only going to increase. Whistleblower allegations are going to increase. The BioRad uh, general counsel trial recently concluded was a real eye-opener because now it shows that a general counsel and, by extension, a chief compliance officer can be a whistleblower uh, with Dodd-Frank and SOX protection. So whistleblower allegations have to be taken seriously and thoroughly investigated. And finally, consider the oral report. Uh, if you have a written report, you've obviously created a roadmap for plaintiffs, lawyers, and subsequent shareholder derivative actions the oral report may be enough uh, that you would need, and if you have ongoing or continuing information that comes up for your investigation, it will not require an amendment of a written report. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed Day 11 of One Month to a Better Board, and I hope you'll join me tomorrow for Day 12. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for joining for today's episode of 30 Days to a Better Board. This series is based on my seminal work, Doing Compliance, Design, Create, and Implement an Effective Compliance Program. It's available from Compliance Week, and you can check it out on their website, compliancework.com. I hope you will join me tomorrow for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.